If you've never heard of CrossFit, it means you've never met anyone who has ever tried it. Hey, Dan, uh, did I tell you I used to do CrossFit? 80% of the entire sample indicated that they're either satisfied or very satisfied at work. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we discover the transferable skills that will help you succeed in a job outside the lab. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 88. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. 88 Dan, 88 Keys, 88 Episodes. 88 Double Infinities on this... I don't know. I can't think of anything else to say about it. Feels like a milestone because it's two eights. It's not a milestone. Oh, and the Olympics okay, are starting come up. come on. You're killing me. Uh, actually, the opening ceremonies have already happened, but they are airing. As we speak, we are not watching the opening ceremonies play here in the U.S., but we're recording this podcast. And have you watched any of the uh, sports puck events? Uh, not yet, but I don't know that they've started. Something else is coming up. Mardi Gras. Oh, yeah, we like Mardi Gras. Yeah, I'm throwing a curveball. I know if you're reading the show notes, you will see that there's a certain beer listed, and this is not that beer. Are you playing tricks on me? Yeah, this was uh, 11th hour. I was at the beer store, and I realized Mardi Gras is coming up. I know this because I have a colleague from New Orleans who is at Mardi Gras. So instead of the beer we were going to drink, we are drinking a beer from Abita Brewing Company. Oh, yeah which is from uh, just a few miles north of New Orleans. And this is one, Dan, I'm throwing it back. You might have had this one. This is the Purple Haze. I thought I recognized the Purple Haze. And your show notes say something about an IPA, and I I thought that is not an IPA, but it's delicious. (laughs) So in honor of Mardi Gras, we've got this uh, Louisiana beer, Abita, probably their most famous and widespread beer. This is the the Purple Haze, Dan. And so the Purple Haze is a lager. It's kind of a light beer, but it's brewed with real raspberries that they add after the filtration Yeah, I was going to ask you which berry I was tasting. And now that you say raspberry, I believe you. My first thought was something like a blueberry, but no, raspberry is the right answer. Yep, got raspberries. And so you can see on the bottle, there's this nice Mardi Gras style skeleton man <laughs> how do you know he's nice <laughs> that's true he doesn't be evil he doesn't actually look that yeah. nice but actually dan we could uh, put back a couple of these because this is only a 4.2 abv nice light beer excellent well it's nice to take a, a slight break from the ipa and you picked a good one all right well available uh, everywhere i assume hey dan also we got a new patreon patron oh great i wanted to say a special thanks to vivian for her support Thank you so much. I and mean, speaking of Patreon, Dan, we had our first ever live Patreon chat with our patrons. It was so much fun. Now, it started out pretty terrible. Uh, <laughs> we were trying to use the Patreon branded chat, which is not a chat. It's a threaded message board that doesn't update. Yeah, it's it not w- great. It was a little rocky start. The Patreon functionality for their live chat is questionable. And, and to make it worse, Dan, I, th- I think I showed you a screenshot of this. Every time someone posted in the chat, I would get an individual email sent to me letting me know. Yeah, I definitely added more messages just so you would get more emails. Uh-huh. But but luckily, everybody was very patient with us. We got everybody switched over to Slack. And the good news is that Slack channel is uh, still alive. And so anybody who signs up as a patron gets to join that Slack channel with us. We've had some really fun conversations over the last week 
with people who have just kind of kept it going with us. We've, we've got some conversations going on about how do you find a postdoc. Differences in the PhD training process in different countries and some analysis of the opening ceremonies. So true. So if you feel like becoming a patron, supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash hellophd or you can click through the link on our website and we'll see you in the Slack channel. All right, Dan, are you ready for some science in the news? Question is, are you ready? Dan, this might be a first. This is a listener-submitted Science in the News. Yeah, this is great. This was sent in by Anna, and I'm glad she sent it because I don't think I would have run across this in my normal daily reading. Oh, was that a pun? You wouldn't run across it? Oh, that's a... You're setting it up, <laughs> except I wasn't trying to. <laughs> the, the theme of today's Science in the News is that there is a, a lawsuit that is threatening one of the sacred traditions of science, and that sacred tradition is the blind... Or, or what they call anonymous peer review. You've submitted papers, Josh. I sure have. I've submitted papers. I have also reviewed papers. Okay. And when you have reviewed papers, did anybody know it was you doing it or were you anonymous? Well, that's an interesting question because, Dan, typically it's been anonymous. However, I did review a paper for a journal recently, just a couple of weeks ago, and the policy for that journal was that all reviewer identities are posted with the article and all reviewer comments are posted with the article. Oh, even online. Mm -hmm. So online, I, I yeah. could go on and read it. You sure could. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting. But is certainly your, that's not the norm. Social security number on there too? Bank <laughs> yeah. accounts? Mother's Nothing? maiden name. Yeah. That, uh, is, that is a, a form of publishing where everybody knows what's happening. There's another form that is the blind process or double blind. And so the idea here is if you know who your reviewers are, you may retaliate against them later when you are uh, reviewing their papers or... Maybe they are presenting some bias because they know who you are. So there are ways that journals try to hide both the reviewer or the author from each other so that there's no bias introduced. And I think, Dan, didn't we have an episode in the early days where we talked about this peer review process and kind of weighed the pros and cons and some, some discussion around some, some different ways of doing things that are a little more open? Absolutely. And, and I think there are some improvements that could be made. I'm not totally convinced that one side knowing who the other side is makes for an unbiased review. I will say this, Dan, you know, when I did that review that I knew was that my name and the review itself were going to be published, I don't want to say I don't take reviews seriously when it's anonymous, but there is a certain level of accountability in the way you communicate it, knowing that it's going to be out there. And then I thought like, well, that's an interesting thing because it seems like theoretically, you should do it the same, whether it's anonymous or not. But Right, and I think that's how the system developed. You may be tempted to kind of pull your punch if you are going to meet up with this person at the next conference, right? I don't want to point out that in figure 4B, they you know messed up their error bar because that's just annoying. But if you were anonymous, you might show them that and they might fix it. So I think there are arguments for both sides. But traditionally, this has been an anonymous relationship. And that has been threatened because... So that arrangement is traditional, but it is not the law. And a court can actually order a publisher to reveal the names of the reviewers. This is not like somebody in the news, a reporter who has a source, and there are usually shield laws in place to protect them from having to reveal that source. Uh, so a court can actually order the journal to reveal their, their reviewers. And this is what's happening in a case that pits CrossFit Inc., CrossFit Incorporated, against the National Strength Conditioning Association. You mean CrossFit, like first rule of CrossFit. Is tell everybody, yeah. There's no one who is unfamiliar with CrossFit because 
If you if you've never heard of CrossFit, it means you've never met anyone who has ever tried it. Hey Dan, the, uh, did I tell you I used to do CrossFit? How was your wad today, Josh? <laughs> wad being the workout of the day. If this gets a little too deep for people, yeah. So if you know somebody who has done CrossFit, you have definitely heard about it, but you may not be familiar. Hey Dan. With- I used to do CrossFit. (laughs) Yeah, I know, Josh. Sorry, go on. (laughs) So the National Strength Conditioning Association, which I will heretofore refer to as the NSCA, is an organization that offers training and certification for personal trainers and coaches related to exercise. So it's it's kind of a certifying organization. It's been around a while. But they also happen to publish a peer-reviewed journal called the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research. And I'll call that JSCR. So there's the journal, and then there's the association that publishes it. And the trouble began when JSCR, the journal, published an article in 2013 titled CrossFit-Based High-Intensity Power Training Improves Maximal Aerobic Fitness and Body Composition, which I think sounds pretty pro-CrossFit. Yeah, that sounds, sounds good to me. Who doesn't want maximal aerobic fitness and body composition? I know I do. Having already achieved it, though, I moved on to other things. <laughs> like a podcast. <laughs> like a podcast. How can I sit in a chair for more hours? So that, that title sounds very positive, but uh, this study, which was done by the Ohio State University in Columbus, looked at the physical and physiological changes of a few dozen volunteers who participated in this 10-week uh, training regimen developed by CrossFit, Inc., And one of the results that they published is that 16% of the participants had to drop out of the study because of injury, which CrossFit said, no way. They actually sued based on that result, saying that the injury stat was made up and that it was intentionally altered. They actually accused them of intentionally altering that due to the competing interest of the strength training organization that publishes the journal. Oh, wow. They sued. So they they said, you made this data up. Not only was it not 16%, but you actually were like colluding to make up a statistic to uh, defame CrossFit Incorporated. The paper has since been retracted. So uh, let me let me fill you in on oh, where yeah. we are. Yeah. CrossFit sued the NSCA. The NSCA countersued CrossFit for defamation. So you've accused us of fraud. That's defamation. We're countersuing. So CrossFit actually suspects the paper's reviewers and editors were working together to play up the injuries associated with the regimen and it had, it had asked both federal and state judges to force the publisher to unmask the reviewers. Now, I'm not exactly clear on why they want to know who the reviewers were, but, but I think it's part of their conspiracy theory that the journal, the reviewers, and the authors of the paper were somehow colluding to take down CrossFit. And so a federal judge denied that request, but just last month, a judge in the San Diego Superior Court in California um, who is overseeing the NSCA's defamation suit, so their countersuit, this judge has said that they have to provide the names of these reviewers. So what's really interesting here is the request to unmask reviewers is really rare, and when it does happen, it's almost always denied, and it's on the basis that it's going to do more harm than good, that if we unmask these reviewers, then the next time you, Josh, are asked to review a paper, you're going to think twice about it. I'm not going to bother getting myself involved in something that's going to get me in trouble later. I, I, I have to say, Dan... Until we started going through this, I was not aware that a court could order a peer reviewer to be unmasked. It is legal and exceedingly rare. And the only reason, and I think this is interesting, the only reason that it's really happening in this case, because when CrossFit asked for this to happen, they were denied. But it's happening in this case because as the NSCA countersued, um, in their suit, they're saying, we think you defamed us, we did the right thing, but we're not going to open up the evidence that we did the right thing. Oh, wow, that's really interesting. So it's only because of the countersuit that now 
the reviewers now will these be revealed. reviewers will be revealed. Exactly right. The plot thickens. The plot thickens. So they, they can't have it both ways. So this is going to probably rage in the courts. I think it's interesting to to think about the uh, implications of anonymous peer review and what happens when it's not anonymous. And so as you go out and review papers, thinking to yourself, no one will ever find out that I wrote this snarky comment at the end. The answer is you're not protected. This is not a protected form of speech. And I really enjoyed, there's a little quote um, in a press release by the NSCA that I'd like to read. CrossFit is a self-proclaimed $100 million for-profit company attacking the NSCA, an educational nonprofit whose mission is to support and disseminate research-based knowledge and its practical application to improve athletic performance and fitness. Wait a moment. I mean, it's just like those big, terrible corporate monsters. Big, beefy corporate Picking monsters. on us, yeah. So... I assume this will rage on in the courts, and it'll be interesting to see when these reviewers are revealed, will they find evidence that this group worked together to uh, kind of make up data? I don't know, Dan. I mean, my gut feeling, I guess we'll see what happens, right? It seems hard to believe that researchers would purposefully just make up data yeah, I didn't. I didn't actually get to to point this out, but the statistic about the the sixteen percent of injuries um, was later corrected, and I have that in quotes. And then the the paper was in, retracted entirely. And the reason that they cited was that there were changes to the study protocol that were not first approved by the university review board. That's one of those excuses that sounds a little made up. So I don't know, but I think it will take the judge and lawyers and jury to figure this out. Well, we will follow it and we will update you. Uh, as this story unfolds. And thanks to Anna for sending this one to us. And if you see some news that you think uh, would be interesting to share, to cover, to discuss, please send it to podcast at hellophd.com. We would love to have more eyes looking for the ways that science is making news. And when we heard this story about CrossFit, we had to talk about it. It's the first rule of CrossFit. I used to do CrossFit. You did? All right. So recently I was able to have a conversation with Melanie Cinch. And Melanie is the author of a recent book called Next Gen PhD. And she's also director of education at the Jackson Laboratory for Genomic Medicine. And the reason I wanted to talk to Melanie is she was co-lead author on a recent paper that came out. And this paper was called An Evidence-Based Evaluation of Transferable Skills and Job Satisfaction for Science PhDs. And a couple of full disclosure things. Uh, The other co-lead author, Becca Layton, is one of my colleagues at UNC. And I may or may not be what I like to call the median author on this paper. There were nine authors on this paper, of which I'm number five. So I'm right in the middle. Fantastic. I'm the median. They had an even number. It had to be you and a half. That's right. Me averaged with the person next to me. Let's let's take a minute and say what a transferable skill is is, because not everybody may have heard that term. That sounds a little bit like a businessy term. So the idea of a transferable skill, especially as it, it refers to PhD training, is that beyond just the specific scientific topic that grad students study in the lab, there are all of these other skills that are gained during that training that maybe have nothing to do with the specific science, but might be broadly useful in a variety of careers. And some examples of this could be ability to work in a team, ability to synthesize information, uh, time management skills. The ability to conduct a research experiment. I worked on research in the lab. I had experiments with hypotheses and data and results. 
but I can go outside of the lab and maybe I'm a web developer and want to test whether the green button or the blue button gets more clicks. Being able to do that type of thinking sounds trivial to people who are in science, but it is not trivial out in the world. That is a transferable skill that is very, very valuable. Yeah, and this idea of transferable skills being gained during PhD training is not a new thing. It's something that that's been alluded to for a while, but there hasn't been a lot of hard data on it. And so one of the things that, that Melanie was a leader in was was putting out this really broad survey. And so so Melanie actually surveyed over 8,000 PhDs in the sciences and asked them a lot of different things. And, and this paper represents some of the, the data that she gleaned from that really massive survey. And, and so the focus of this one was to look at the transferable skills that these individuals who have since moved on into careers, to what degree they believe they received these skills during their training. And then also, and I think this is the important part, how useful those skills that they received during their training actually were in the careers that they did. And another interesting component of this was that in the paper, they break this out among uh, different types of careers. And, and specifically, they make the delineation between research-intensive careers and non-research-intensive careers. And, and look at the difference between those two with regard to what skills were important. I think that's really exciting. So let's hear the interview. I want to warn people, the first part of the interview occurred over Skype, and then something happened with Skype, and the second part of the interview occurs by phone. You'll hear an audio difference, but <laughs> the whole thing is, is really fascinating and really valuable. And so you may just notice that change in the sound quality in the middle. Here's my interview with Melanie. Hi, everyone. My name is Melanie Cinch, and I currently serve as the Director of Education at the Jackson Laboratory for Genomic Medicine. We are a nonprofit research institute. We're actually based in the center of Connecticut near Hartford. We're in Farmington, Connecticut. And I work with graduate students from the University of Connecticut Health Center as well as postdocs who come to the lab to train. I have been working primarily on college campuses for most of my career. I'm actually trained as a career counselor and have been working with graduate students and postdocs in the sciences for about 20 years now. Well, the reason we wanted to have you on the show was to talk about a recent paper that you published, and the title of that was An Evidence-Based Evaluation of Transferable Skills and Job Satisfaction for Science PhDs. So those, those are lots of things that, that we talk about a lot on the show, um, talking about PhD training and careers and we thought it'd be really great for you to come on and tell us a little bit about this study, what some of the findings were, and, and why, why the study might be interesting or important to science trainees. So I guess, first of all, what led you to pursue this type of study? Given my background as a career counselor and meeting alone with PhDs and postdocs for so long, I started to hear the same themes. So I heard from many, many graduate students and postdocs I've worked with that they don't recognize skills that they have. I've, I've often sat in counseling appointments with people who have said, but I have no skills, and I have no skills employers would ever be interested in. And I felt frustrated by that comment and motivated to conduct a research study around skill development because I would argue that scientific training by its very nature lends itself to the development of lots of different skills. And I knew through meeting with these talented and very bright scholars over time that they had developed the ability to 
think critically, the ability to solve problems, the ability to analyze data, and so on and so forth. But I knew that only anecdotally. So I had no uh, concrete data to support that. So I actually went to a labor economist, Richard Freeman, who works at Harvard Law School. He is the director of the Labor and Work Life Program there. And I told Richard about what I was thinking. I said, you know, I'd like to conduct some survey research wherein I could look at recent PhDs. So I wanted to build a cohort of PhDs who had graduated within the past 10 years. And I wanted to ask a few research questions, one of which was, what skills do PhDs develop organically by the nature of their training in science? And are those the same skills that are required for success across all occupations? Because my theory and my um, argument was that, yes, indeed, they develop lots of transferable skills that employers across all industries are attracted to. And Richard was really excited about the, the idea of that research project. And he actually asked me to come on to his group as a research associate um, to work with them to develop a program called Identifying Career Paths for PhDs in Science. And that was 2014. And then in the spring of 2015, I launched uh, the survey. And the survey was open for just a month. And I leaned heavily on social media to recruit participants for the survey. And I looked at all graduates who had graduated with a PhD in any scientific discipline between 2004 and 2014. And I was really encouraged by the response. So I received just over 11,000 responses. Of those, just over 8,000 were usable. Um, of those that weren't usable, they, they just had graduated outside of that date range. So that was the beginning of the study. And in the study, I asked about those two areas. So skill development during the PhD and the requirement of those same skills for success in people's current occupations. That's really cool. And one thing that I think is is really impressive about this study is the scale of the cohort. The fact that this isn't data from dozens or a few hundred PhDs from one program, but over 8,000 PhDs in a variety of science fields in a variety of, from a variety of different contexts. Uh, so it really does give you this overview, this big picture snapshot of, of what's going on. So you alluded to the fact that trainees don't often realize the transferable skills that they have. That's something we've talked about on the show as well. Do you think it's important for PhDs to actually recognize that they are, in fact, building these skills during their training? Do you think that would be helpful for them to know and realize that while they're going through their training? Yes, of course, because they have to have the ability and confidence to articulate the skills that they're developing for lots of reasons, uh, not just you know by the time they've completed their PhDs, but during their programs. It's important to develop the ability to express their skills and what they have to contribute for grant applications, for conversations that they may have with funders, for conversations that they have with collaborators. So for all of those reasons, it's important for PhDs to recognize and have the confidence to express um, the skills that they've developed through the nature of their training. And, you know, one of the things that I did for the survey was to develop a list of 15 skills that I argue that PhDs develop during their training. Having developed that list of 15, we then looked at how people self-rated. 
across those 15 skills. Uh, and I was really struck by the results that people do feel, for the most part, that they have developed uh, most of the skills that we listed. They for the most part, felt that they did, in fact, develop those skills during their PhD um, process. So these are people, again, in the sample who have completed their PhD, who recognize that they built skills during their PhD that were valuable on the job. What are some examples of those skills, those transferable skills that PhDs indicated, looking back, they felt they really did gain during their training? Sure. One of the important ones, I think, uh, or most important to employers, is the ability to learn quickly. That was um, assessed by the PhDs in the sample in a positive way. They believe that they developed the skill to learn quickly during their PhD training. And you'd better believe that there is not an employer out there who does not value that skill, that in any sector it's critical for you to be able to learn quickly on the job. Another set of skills were... Um, oral and written communication skills. Those were proven to be developed by the PhDs. And those also are crucial for any job. We always will be communicating either about our science or about a project that we're working on. And we need to be able to communicate about that in writing and in spoken word. And I think that the PhDs in the sample proved that they definitely developed those skills through the course of their PhD training and that those skills are highly valued by employers across a wide range of uh, sectors. So, so were there any, any gaps that, that came about between the skills that students gained during graduate school and those that they felt they needed in their eventual career? Sure. Um, there were some gaps. One um, that we looked at was actually in the ability to manage others. I think this is an area that graduate programs and postdoctoral training programs can start to look at. We might be able to build in programs where we can train young scientists in how to manage other people effectively. Um, We can train them on how to coach and mentor and um, develop projects that are meaningful for people that they're working with. Time management is another area that we could focus on in terms of training for our PhDs and postdocs. Uh, There, I think, is an opportunity for program development and helping our PhDs and postdocs, primarily um, those who want to uh, move into uh, non-research intensive careers, that the ability to manage a project and manage their time effectively is crucial. That area of skill development was rated higher for those who are interested in non-research intensive skills uh, than the entire sample across the board. Uh, So I think that there is an opportunity um, for graduate programs to start to build there. Also, the ability to work on a team. We looked at again, the skill development of the sample overall, and that skill was rated um, not as highly as others. And we think that uh, graduate programs, and by the nature, actually, of science and scientific research uh, and the movement towards more interdisciplinary work um, will help trainees in the future. And graduate programs and postdoctoral training programs can be more explicit in developing team structures and team projects and assist trainees in 
how to collaborate effectively, how to contribute to a project as a member of a team. You know, what we were struck by looking at all of these skill sets was that skill set that was ranked the lowest of all of the skills in the study was career planning and awareness. And that was ranked the lowest of, um, across the entire sample. And there, I think there's great opportunity for growth across graduate and postdoctoral training programs because it is our job in research institutes to introduce lots of different career options to our scientific trainees. And so I think it is crucial for us to start to expose them to greater options. Um, For example, there's a great uh, program in New York that takes place every year called What Can You Be With a PhD? It just happened in November at NYU. And there, um, there, uh, at that conference, there were more than 90 scientists who served as speakers on small panels to talk about different options for science PhDs. And it's that kind of exposure that we need to ensure uh, is happening across the U.S. for our scientific trainees so they're aware of all of the options and choices that they have in science. You know, it's kind of a funny it's kind of a funny thing that this paper highlights that by and large graduate school does a pretty good job of preparing trainees for a wide variety of careers. However, <laughs> where it really falls short or one area where it really falls short is informing those same trainees of the careers that they are prepared for. Yeah, isn't that ironic? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that that is very. So, that's just that just struck me as funny um, as as you were saying that. But but to to pivot just a little bit, there was one other part of the study, and I know this wasn't the primary focus of the study, but beyond looking at the skills that trainees gained um, and the skills that they felt they needed in their careers, you also asked some questions about job satisfaction. And, and that was something I thought was really important because one thing we've talked about on the show before is in a lot of different contexts, there are these questions throughout the PhD landscape, um, in our country at least, about are we training too many PhDs? Are there too many postdocs? Well, we don't have a lot of data on the, the careers that people are going to do. And so, um, and even if we know what careers PhDs eventually go do, one thing that we haven't known is how they feel about it. So, you know, maybe they're employed, but do they actually like the, the job that they're doing? And so, so you actually asked these 8,000 PhD respondents about their job satisfaction. What did you find there? I was so encouraged by what I found when I asked that question because of all of the reasons that you named. We don't have a lot of data on job satisfaction for our science PhDs. And across the board, across research-intensive, non-research-intensive careers, from people who are um, in a traditional tenure-track role to people who are patent agents or science writers or people who are working in policy in D.C., so many different occupations represented. There we found that 80% of the entire sample indicated that they're either satisfied or very satisfied at work. 80% of all of the science PhDs in the sample, and that was incredible. And I think that that shows us that there is life after the PhD, life after the postdoc, that people who are applying these skills that they've developed, including the ability to look at a problem and to conduct research and to develop solutions, 
uh, is attractive, is attractive to them to gather and interpret information, to analyze data, um, to make decisions. And these skills are important across a wide range of occupations. And people enjoy that work. And that's, you know, the primary message I wanted to share with all of the people across the U.S., to let them know that that people who are in different occupations who are trained as scientists are really happy um, regardless of their work. So I was really encouraged by that. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really important message to get out, especially to current trainees, to graduate students, to postdocs, because there can be, and you know this, there there can be a little bit of negativity that, that can creep in about prospects about job prospects and i think sometimes that can make the training experience even a little harder if you're working really hard and it can be frustrating at times but then sometimes if you even question what's this going to lead to so that was one thing i took away from your paper was okay this gives a lot of hope and encouragement to current trainees that wow there is a really great job out there for me that's going to be satisfying that i'm actually going to be prepared for well, that's that's how I feel. I, I was really, um, I was really surprised by that number, and uh, was equally encouraged because I feel that this is a message I've been sharing over time, only anecdotally, because I've met with so many trainees after they've gone to on to different um, jobs, and they're really happy. And I think Josh, you're um, you're one of them. I think you're proof. <laughs> um, at least I think you like that, your job. That, that is totally uh, true. I, I, I enjoy going to work every day. And I'm sure you use a lot of these same skills that we've discussed today. So no, I absolutely, I absolutely do. And and you know that that's one of the reasons why I was encouraged to do this podcast is looking in retrospect, looking back on the challenges of training. You know, I can very much remember how how it was hard and in what specific ways and how I would at times question and doubt whether I even wanted to stick with the training. But now that I'm on the other side and I have my own experience and I've spoken with so many others who have transitioned into these really interesting and satisfying careers, one reason I want to do this podcast is to <laughs> is to make sure grad students, it's almost like an It Gets Better project for grad students, realizing, you know, this training you're doing, this is not your end result. This is just a stepping stone to something great, so stick with it. That's exactly right. That's a, that's a great message. So, so I guess the last thing, what's, what's next for you? What, what's next on the research horizon? What questions do you think still need to be addressed or are you, are you interested in addressing in the future? So... I it's a, um, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> it's, um, it's an interesting um, time for us across the country because we still um, we see that there are not as many um, women and underrepresented groups um, persisting in science. And so, what I'd like to do next for my next research project is look at um, motivations um, motivations behind. Um, the reasons why our women and uh, URM populations are either leaving science or um, if they are staying in science, why they're um, choosing the particular career pathways that they are and what we can glean from that. We still need to have greater representation of uh, women and underrepresented minorities in science to enable the scientific endeavor to persist and for the entire research landscape to function um, as effectively as it can, I'd like to see greater representation and the representation of people engaged in science mirror the, the population of the U.S. 
Uh, and so that's that's what I'm going to work on next. So I'm really excited about it. And, and there's been some great work that's uh, been done around uh, women and, and URMs and science up to this point, but I think there's more that we can learn. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, thank you, Melanie, for talking to me today. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, thank you. All right, Dan, that was my conversation with Melanie. Really wildly fascinating. So one thing I thought was cool was to see how much that people across the board, no matter what career they were in, really were able to look back and see those transferable skills that they gained outside of the work they were doing in the lab and how those were useful in their current job. And and I think, Dan, that's something that you and I recognize in our own experience now that we're looking back that, oh yeah, I actually did learn some things in graduate school that are serving me now in my current career. But I think it was really hard. It can be really hard to see that sometimes when you're in the middle of your training. It's so true. And I think it's really hard to know how to talk about them in a way that other people will understand. So yes, we we learn skills in the lab, but it's very easy to put your blinders on and say, I learned how to design a primer uh, that was going to amplify this region of DNA. But it's hard to say, oh, I actually managed uh, an undergraduate student through a project from beginning to end, and that student is now in grad school herself, or whatever it is. Finding some of those things that move outside of the lab and then knowing how to talk about them. I think we minimize the skills that are maybe valuable outside of the lab, and we only think about the techniques we did, and that's, that's the opposite of what we need to do. Speaking of transferable skills, Dan, I wanted to draw your attention to figure two. I know you're a data visualization guy. I see some... Pink and blue dots. So my real contribution to this paper uh, was not collecting any of these data, but I've created figure two. You made a graph. I made a graph. And and so uh, figure two, I think, could be useful for people who are exploring different types of careers. We will put it in the show notes. It's color-coded in all these different types of careers. And then you can can quickly look at the different 15 different transferable skills, and you can see what people who are in those careers which of those skills they actually find really useful in their current job. And, and it's really interesting to see that in some of the jobs, certain skills are super important, but in other careers, those skills aren't important at all. So I thought this would be interesting as a current trainee to think about what careers you're interested in, scan this, and you can say, oh, these are things that people doing that job, skills they find really important. So maybe this is something I could think about uh, focusing on during my training. If you look at uh, science writing as an example, this is the pink dots. If you look over it, this makes sense. Time management and written communication, the science writers, those are two of the most important skills. And then if you look at managing others... Um, almost not important at all. Right, that makes makes a lot of sense. So this is interesting. There's a lot of information here to glean through. And, and you know, if you're interested in science policy or business development or uh, being some kind of administrator, you can take a look at this chart and see what are the things I need to work on. And, and Dan, the, the last thing I thought was really cool, and this is the the item that I asked Melanie about towards the end of our conversation. And while it wasn't a huge focus of this study, one of the things in Melanie's survey she asked people was the degree to which they were satisfied with their career. And I remember in a previous episode where we were talking about postdocs and whether there are too many postdocs, you know, there's some information that a lot of postdocs are getting jobs, but we talked about how one of the missing pieces was, okay, well, getting a job is one thing, but are people getting jobs that they want? Are people getting jobs they're satisfied with? And what this research is indicating and what, what Melanie's survey is showing is across the board, no matter what career people are going into after graduate school, 
overwhelmingly they're they're pretty satisfied with those jobs. Yeah, I think the statistic she cited was eighty percent job satisfaction. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. And and I think that holds true just anecdotally, Dan, with ourselves and the people that we know. You're eighty percent satisfied with your job. Eighty <laughs> uh, percent of 80% us in the room. Of, of you and I are <laughs> pretty right. happy. That's right. Uh, but anyway, I would you know if I was a current trainee, I would find that encouraging. I think. Yeah, I think I think that's totally true. Can I tell you my most important transferable skill? What was it, Dan? Um, the ability to open a bottle one-handed. So when you're in the hood oh, and yeah. you've, got, you've got to keep everything sterile, when you have a baby in one arm and, and you're trying to get like a baby bottle ready or you're trying to get the lid off the medicine, the, the ability to use one hand to open a bottle and yeah. then put the lid back on, put it back in the fridge. Yeah, then you, you kind of hold that lid in the fingers and then you can pop it back on yeah. after you pour Yeah, I agree. Any um, hiring managers out there, I'm available. Mine was uh, IP injecting a mouse. <laughs> <laughs> is this how you take care of the uh, mouse problem in the basement? You just catch them just and scruff them. In. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I got you. <laughs> oh, that's not true. All right, Dan. Well, if you'd like to, to read the paper, we're going to put a link to that in the show notes, and I'd suggest you check it out. Excellent. Thanks, Josh. All right, Dan. What do you got for Word of the Week? Okay. The clue last week was, though this mineral may glitter by firelight, don't mistake it for gold. How are you with minerals, Josh? You I think geologist I, at heart. I think I know this one, Dan. Is this one pyrite? It is. And do you know the root of pyrite? I don't. Pi? Pyre, fire. Uh, from the Greek, fire in fire of fire is P Y R, pyre. So uh, I didn't actually know this, but pyrite actually can make a spark. The chemical symbol is. FES2, it's iron 2 disulfide. And so if you strike it against steel, it will actually make a spark. And this is why it came to be called pyrite. In the 16th and 17th centuries, pyrite was used as a form of ignition for early firearms, which is kind of awesome. And in modern times, it's actually being used in new batteries. So still relevant. There you go. Fool's gold. Fool's gold. I would like to mention our winner this week just because our winner is actually a geologist who uh, was apparently a first-time listener last time and wrote in and knew the answer. That was for Erica. So we'll be sending you an Amazon gift card. All right. Congrats, Erica. And here's the clue for next week, Josh. Species from this order of soft-bodied invertebrates sometimes have very hard shells. One more time. Species from this order of soft-bodied invertebrates sometimes have very hard shells. Remember, we're looking for a scientific word described by the clue. And once you get it, you'll find that the literal meaning of that science word is a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com. We'll randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card and some gold. Full <laughs> gold. All right, Dan. Great show, as usual. Thanks for joining me. Good to be here. Yeah, and thanks to, again, everybody who joined us in our Patreon chat and on now on the Slack channel. It's like a fun new thing to pay attention to every day. Something more to distract <laughs> you. Set your Pomodoro timer, Josh. That's right. If you have a question or topic idea, we would love to hear it. You can email us at podcast at hellophd.com, send us a tweet at hellophd, or leave us a message on the Facebook page. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. And it's called Apple Podcast Network. Is it really? If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron and get access to that Slack channel. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, and click the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the beer money. All right, Dan, you ready to get out of here and watch some opening ceremonies? I'm ready. We've got some purple haze. It's time. All right. We will see you next time. See you then.